0: We have made our way as far as Luke chapter 1 verse 56 as we read through the first chapter of Luke together. And as we come now to the birth of John the Baptist and listen to all that his father Zachariah has to say afterwards, for nine months Elizabeth has enjoyed the silence at home as Zachariah has not been able to speak due to his unbelief in the wake of the angel proclaiming uh, in wake of the angel proclaiming that they would bear a son in their elderly age even, even to the point where Elizabeth's barrenness would be overcome by the mercies of God. So we pick it up in verse 57 of chapter 1 and now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had showed great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. In the culture that we are reading, in the Jewish culture back then, when giving birth to a child, it was anything but a private experience. In fact, it would be very uh, appropriate for the entire room in which the woman is giving birth to be filled with relatives and neighbors. If the home was large enough, there would also be a band hired. If the room was large enough, the band would be in the room with the woman who is about to give birth. Now, what was the purpose of the band? Simply to lead them into celebration? Well, no, they had a specific cause, and that cause was this. If the child was a male, the band would then strike up and start playing and and just uh, exuberantly uh, proclaiming that a male has been born. If it was a female, the band would pack up and go home. I'm sorry. Take it up with God. That's what happened back then. But it was anything but a private affair. And because of the circumstances, the pregnancy of Elizabeth undoubtedly garnered more attention than most pregnancies would have. Due to the fact that she was elderly in her years, she had been barren her entire life, and now at this point in her life, in her marriage with her husband Zachariah, a child is about to be born. And as a result, through this child, through the child in whom this child would be a forerunner to, the prophecies of the Old Testaments being fulfilled to Messiah were going to all take place. So at the eighth day, as we come now to verse 59, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have had called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no. At the eighth day of the child's life, the male child's life, he would be brought before the rabbi, or if the city was small, it would be the actual father of the child. In this case, the father was both. Zechariah, being a priest in the heavenly temple, had every right to circumcise his male child, he himself. So, most likely, that is what's taking place here. The Bible speaks a lot about circumcision. And we in the Gentile culture, I don't think fully understand the connotations that the Bible lays out concerning the process of circumcision. Now, I'm not going to spell it out for you or have illustrations demonstrating it for you. I will spare you from that. But what did it mean biblically? Biblically, it was significant it demonstrated that this male child was now going to be within the covenant of Abraham. Within the uh, Jewish people, he would therefore be recognized as one included in the covenant of Abraham. As Genesis seventeen nine through 11 states, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and your offsprings after you throughout their generations." This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so this was prescribed for every Jewish male child, including Jesus himself, to be circumcised on the eighth day. In the New Testament, Paul and others wanted the church to understand the significance of the circumcision. It was to demonstrate that an element of the heart was dealt with before God, that the portion of the heart that was hardened before him was now eliminated and alleviated, and a new heart was given to an individual to allow him or her to worship and to interact with the Lord. Some, though, believe that circumcision was necessary to continue in the New Testament for salvation in Christ Jesus, but Paul refutes that in many places, including Romans and in the book of Galatians. In fact, in Romans, Paul states here very clearly, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The issue of circumcision was always to indicate an inward truth. It was an outward demonstration of an inward truth that a heart of an individual was inclined to God. That the, the difficulties or the hardness of the heart had been eliminated and the sensitivity of the heart had been gained. Now this isn't simply just a New Testament concept. It is a concept that goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. For Deuteronomy ten sixteen and 17 states circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and no longer be stubborn for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. Later in Deuteronomy he reiterates this point again and states and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. And so in, in compliance with what God had stated, John here is now being circumcised on the eighth day to show him compliant with the covenant of Abraham and also inclining his heart towards God. At that time, the child would therefore be named. And when they went to name the child, the relatives once again chirped in with their opinion. You know, it's so hard for a woman who is is about to have her first child or even her second. I couldn't believe how many opinions my wife garnished the moment she started showing as a newly pregnant woman. It was amazing. Oh, honey, the way you're carrying, it must be a boy. Oh, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. She's much too low for a boy. That's a girl. No, no, no. How's your back? Does your back hurt? Then it's a boy. Oh, oh, what, your, your feet hurt? oh then it's a girl you know, and, and so forth and so everybody wants to interject at the time that the, an individual is carrying a child their two cents concerning their wisdom that they have gained over the years and this is like any other culture they all begin to chime in and state what the child's name shall be they assume that the child's name was going to be Zachariah after the father But Elizabeth stops them and says, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relative is called by this name. And they made a sign to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, let us remember that at this point, Zechariah is still unable to speak due to his unbelief in the wake of the angel's announcement of the, not only conception, but the birth and ministry of John the Baptist. And as a result, he has not been able to say anything for nine months. Elizabeth wrote that this was the best nine months of her life. And as a result, as now Zechariah is being consulted her, here in verse 62, by them writing a sign, it may state that he was also deaf, not only could he not speak, but in the wake of reading the sign and inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Of course, Gabriel gave this name to them. It means God is gracious. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth at his Zacharias was opened, and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now all that we have read is a precursor or a preface to the prophecy or the benedictus is what it's called in song form. It is the benedictus and it is uh, the song that is therefore recorded after the Magnificent which is the song of Mary that Luke records for us. It is a prophecy. This prophecy was sung in the early church to describe the coming of the Savior himself. In the song that Mary beautifully rendered in the magnificence, she described everything that God was. Her theological knowledge was robust as she obviously had a very, very distinct understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, much of her song is based on the book of Psalms. And you can discover and trace back and see how she used these songs and she took them and brought them together in a cohesive manner to praise God for the character and who He is. And so this particular song is going to now stress what the Messiah is going to do. I think that as believers in Jesus Christ, not only shall we praise God for who He is, but also for what He does. I believe that it is important that we as Christians have a thorough theological understanding of who God is. As we read the Bible, one of the aspects that we should always be looking for is when God reveals something about himself to us. It is through the Bible and the Bible alone that God specially reveals himself to us. This is how we know the character and the intricacies of God the Father and so forth. Not only His character, but His heart and His minds and thoughts towards us and His plans and purposes that He's unfolding through the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. And as we read through the Old Testament, we should always notice how God has revealed Himself to His people Israel and understand that that's the same God of yesterday, today, and forever, and that He doesn't change. Knowing the character of God allows us, therefore, to depart from our personal understanding of limitations that we are subjected to and allow ourselves to place our faith on God and His limitless parameters of limitation. The only way I can do that is by knowing who God is. That's the only way I can get past myself is by knowing who God is and seeing the characteristic of God playing out. But then my heart is also comforted by knowing all that God is doing. A, I can't look at the world around me today and not be troubled by what I see unless I look through a biblical worldview, understanding of the scriptures, understanding the plans and purposes of God, then things become more clear to me and make more sense to me. So when we praise God, let us not only praise Him for who He is, but for all that He is doing. The benedictus, the prophecy... As now Zechariah will address the question left for us by the hearts of those wondering, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. In verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Luke gives us this information to let us know that what we are about to read has been given to Zechariah by God through the Spirit of God and therefore is relevant to not only the Messiah but to the fulfillment of all the Messiah is going to do. The reason I say this is because we have a Western culture understanding of Messiah. Messiah. When you compare our Western culture understanding of Messiah to the Jewish understanding of Messiah, you'll see that there are portions that we are missing to the fulfillment of all that he is going to do that the Old Testament tells us that He's going to do, but that we kind of overlook or read through quickly because it doesn't mean as to us what it meant to the Jewish person reading at that time. But let us understand that the salvation process in which God is bringing forth through Messiah is not only the people that God is saving, but all of creation that is moaning under the weight and the effects of sin and of death. Dealing with not only the sin of the world, but the corruption within it, holding those eventually accountable that seem to have gotten away with murder in a system that we carry that is unjust or is subjective in and of itself due to the fallen nature of man, God himself is going to hold those accountable that have slipped through the crack of our judicial system. But let us also understand that the political ramifications of Messiah. This is a portion of Messiah's uh, coming and coming again that is often neglected. You know, we have a lot of hope for our presidents that they're going to bring about and usher in a new era here in the United States of America through their personal example and conduct and, and uh, spiritual position. Many look at the presidents of the United States as they look at the kings of the Old Testament. You know, the king was good, the nation went good. king was bad, the nation went bad, and so on and so forth. But that roller coaster ride that Israel was on is due to the fact that every single king that sat on the throne, including David himself, was subjected to a sin nature. It's only going to be when Christ sits on the throne that that roller coaster will end once and for all. And that'll happen after his second coming during the millennial period of reign from Jerusalem that Revelation 20 specifies for us and that all look forward to. I say all of this because Zachariah's perspective of the Messiah is so broad compared to our Western culture, you know, where we simply say, and we rightfully say, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and we are now forgiven of our sins, and that we now can be saved through Him, and then we'll enter, enter into heaven for all eternity. And, and yet, when we read the Bible the ramifications of the salvation in which Messiah brings is enormous. And we are just part of that, a big part of it, but we're a part of all that God is doing that's going to culminate in Revelation 21 and 22 in what's called the new heaven and the new earth. And so it's, mir- it's m- just absolutely miraculous to me to see and to understand That when these individuals are birthed and born, notice that the neighbors and the band and everybody was celebrating there for John. But when Messiah comes into the room, Messiah comes into the world, I should say, more specifically, he's not greeted with a band and cheering neighbors and relatives, but to the mooing of a cow, possibly, to an animal sitting there gazing and watching. The humility of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who through all the world will be redeemed for the purposes of God. And what I mean by that are those who come to saving faith through Christ and the world that has been affected and tainted by sin and death will be eliminated and a new earth, a new heaven and new Jerusalem will be provided and what a glorious time that will be. Let us begin here in verse 68 as he begins to prophesy would blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. The word blessed there means praiseworthy. One who deserves to be exalted. Recognizing the Lord that is Yahweh here God of Israel, it states again that we are looking at the God of the Old Testament continuing into the new for he has visited his people the word visited can best be described by this illustration, it's an incredible word, it's used twice here in the prophecy when you go to a, your doctor's office for a visit, you're often then greeted at the front counter. You check in. Of course, you give them your insurance card, pay your, you know, copayment, and then you sit and wait for your name to be called. After your name is called, you then go and sit in a room that's usually 20 degrees colder than it should be. They tell you to sit up on this table that you just kind of wonder who else has sat up on it and so forth. And then you, what do you do? What? Well, you got the same doctor I do. And you wait, don't you? And wait, and wait, and then all of a sudden you hear, and then the door opens and there comes your doctor. It is a term for a medical doctor visiting a patient. And therefore the visitation has to do with diagnosing what's wrong with the patient. God visited us. He came, he spent time with us. He diagnosed our problem and our problem was salvation and he prescribed a course of treatment and that is redemption. And he redeemed us. His people This is what God has done on our behalf. He saw our greatest need and provided a course of treatment to cure us from the greatest need that we have, and that is separation from God due to sin that has brought upon death. So he has redeemed us. Redeemed us from who? Well, some believe that we were redeemed from Satan, but it wasn't the wrath of Satan that we were under prior to the coming of uh, our, our salvation being provided through the person of Jesus Christ. It was the wrath of God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ from sin and death, and therefore we have been redeemed from the curse of the law and the bondage to the law. We have been brought from that dying to it since in our new state, in our new life, as we've been born again into it, We then have died to the old. We've died to the Old Testament. We've died to the law. We've died to the bondage of the law. And we've been made a new creation in Christ, free of these things in Christ by grace. As a redeemer, Jesus Christ became our substitute He became our substitutionary atonement. What we could not pay in and of ourselves, He paid on our behalf. And again, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is what redeemed us. Of course it's a term that was used for the redemption of slaves in that culture which were in bondage due to economic uh, purposes because they could not pay back a loan or they could not Uh, repay a debt that they had uh, incurred and so they could bring themselves under the, the servitude of the individual to pay back that loan. Now if someone would come on their behalf and pay their debt for them, they then would be released from that service in which they were owed. Jesus Christ has done that. He has released us from the from the penalty of the wrath of God. He has released us from the curse of the law. He's released us from the bondage of the law. He's remedied sin, and therefore he's dealt with death. And this is the reason why we can now enjoy eternal life. This is what he has done. This is what Zechariah is praising God for doing. And in verse 69, he talks about the one, he has raised up a horn, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He is not talking about John his own son here obviously he's talking about the Messiah. The one who would come from the lineage of David through both Mary and Joseph he's talking and describing the ministry fulfillment of Jesus because we know that John the Baptist was through the, the tribe of Levi. And through that lineage, and of course, Jesus came down through the tribe of Judah. And as a result, the horn of salvation, and this is always meant to indicate a position of strength. The horn of the animal always indicated its power. And the means of by which salvation shall be brought unto the people, God has showed himself strong, and it's going to come Through the house of David, which had been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, if the psalmist wrote in Psalm 18, 1 through 3, he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I shall take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And so Zechariah continues as he praises and describes the ministry of the one who is to come. Let us direct our attention, though, to the fact... "...that this had been spoken about by the mouths of the holy prophets from old." From the very beginning, Genesis 3.15 tells us that God had already begun to remedy the issue of fallen man, fallen creation through one who would come and redeem it all in and through his perfection, his sacrifice, and his resurrection." From the very beginning the prophecies began to echo as ripples upon a water stating that even though things looked as dark as they did and the nation of Israel was, uh, was as fault uh, ridden as it was and so unfaithful unto God in different periods of time God was going to be faithful to her and to continue to raise up and fulfill the promise of the coming Redeemer. When reading through the Old Testament, one of the great processes is finding all the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. When you're reading through Isaiah, read it slowly because you can see so many within the songs in which Isaiah writes. There are over 333 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to go through each one this morning. Then we're going to move on to the 600 and some that are, that are referring to His second coming. To say that the Old Testament is replete with these things would be making an understatement to it all. But not only was the promise of Messiah given through these prophecies but also a description of what Messiah was going to do. And in verse um, 71 we find one of the great attributes of the coming Messiah. One that we as Gentiles may not be as fully acquainted with as one who would be Jewish. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. For the psalmist wrote in Psalm 106.10, he wrote So he saved us from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. The idea of the Messiah coming to the Jewish mindset was this, that militarily they were going to overcome through him all of their adversaries. This would allow them not to reign supreme within the world, But we're going to notice here very clearly that they felt that their enemies were hindering them from their full adoration, devotion, and worship of the Lord and being servants to Him. They believed that their enemies were keeping them from perfectly fulfilling all that God had for them to do. And so in the Old Testament, when it talks about these enemies... They often are referring to the foes at that time that would encroach upon their nation and so forth, and they wanted to be freed of these things. They wanted to be loosened from the subjectivity, the oppression. And at the time of Zechariah, he's now prophesying this when, of course, Israel and Jerusalem is under the weight of oppression of the Roman Empire. Before that, it was the Greeks and so forth. And they have seen this pattern ever since you you go all the way back to the book of Daniel and it talks about this oppression they wanted to see this time once and for all pass. Where they would be delivered from the power of their enemies. Messiah was going to lead them to do that. Now what is interesting to me in verse 71 the second portion of it is a quote that is found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek um, Old Testament that we have, from the book of Zechariah. Again, a promise of liberation through the hand of the Messiah. The Messiah certainly dealt with our ultimate enemy in His first coming. That enemy is an enemy to all of us. Now many would say, well that enemy obviously is Satan. But the New Testament talks about an enemy even more practical than Satan, and I shouldn't shouldn't word it that way. Satan is certainly a formidable enemy. And his his ability to uh, affect our lives has been greatly diminished by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and us as new creations walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the enemy that Jesus Christ truly saved us from was death. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your sting? For the last enemy has been defeated. Jesus Christ brought about the victory over death that you and I were faced with. The dilemma of death he has remedied for us through salvation that even though this physical body may die, as the Bible says, we shall live again for all eternity. This is the enemy, I believe, that the Messiah dealt with once and for all at his first coming, and I'll sum that up for you in just a minute. But for them, they showed a national fulfillment. This will happen at the Millennial Kingdom, where Jesus himself will reign from Jerusalem and all the nations of the world will come and worship through him there in Jerusalem. In verse 72 to show mercy, I'm sorry, to show the mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he had swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we might that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before Him all our days. That's the purpose for this liberation. It wasn't to dominate the whole entire world. It wasn't to show them military uh, superiority to the different empires that reign throughout the world in their particular culture. It was to allow them to worship their God free from any kind of hindrance or distraction that there might be. But he states this and begins this with this incredible statement. By the mercies of God you have granted to us. He undoubtedly is looking back, Zechariah being a priest of the the Levitical tribe of uh, Levi. He has served in the temple. He has been a priest his entire life. He knows the word of God thoroughly. And knows that Israel continuously from its establishment after the deliverance of uh, them from the bondages of Egypt all the way to the coming of Messiah, countlessly they have been unfaithful to God. One time after another. Continuously rebelling against God, raising up foreign gods in their midst, continuously disobeying God and so forth. And he he says says this in such a beautiful way. You know, oh Lord, the mercy that you're showing us, you should be pouring upon wrath upon us, but yet you are faithfully providing that which you have promised. I am so thankful for the grace of God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. And in this case, Zechariah saw this as mercy. Lord, you're still providing the Messiah for us. Now, let us not miss this, because if we do, we are not going to fully understand the impact of what is being said here. For God had been silent for 400 years. You simply turn maybe one or two pages of your Bible from the last chapter of Malachi to the first chapter of Matthew and say, okay, the story continues on. But in those one or two pages is 400 years contained. 400 years. That's more than the United States has been a nation. They had not heard from God. They had gone through incredibly difficult, difficult times before God. They, uh, they didn't know where they stood with their God. They didn't know if they had sinned to the point in which they, sin was now, uh, had severed them for God at one time said that he divorced himself from them, etc. And now he says the mercy of God has been shown. And it's in these children. It's in John. It's in Jesus. Therefore, to fulfill the promise of the covenant made. The covenant is found in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sands that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Undoubtedly, as the angel, as God spoke to him at that moment through the angel, That was the moment that he just was about to sacrifice Isaac and God stopped him and stated, I shall provide myself a sacrifice. 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ carried his cross up that exact same mountain where he was crucified for the sins of the world. As he then moves to now begin to focus in verse 76 upon the child in which has just been born, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. And in John's life, you have this beautiful transition from the old to the new, really found in the statement I must decrease and he must increase. That's a statement that I wish all believers would understand in their own personal lives that I must decrease and the Lord in me must increase. It is this that I desire that it's not me who lives any longer but Christ who lives me lives in me and through me. This is the child that's going to go before the Messiah. He's going to be a prophet of the Most High. They're already showing and stating that Zachariah and Mary and Elizabeth all knew this was the Son of God that He was God Himself incarnate that He pre-existed before the birth. He then came in the birth and dwelt among us. For you will go before, look what he says here, Christos, little the Lord. To prepare his way again, acknowledging the deity of Jesus Christ, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This will be the beginning of the redemption of all, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ able to forgive and to release an individual from the, from the, the penalty and the presence and the power of sin will be a demonstration of the salvation in which he is able to provide for the entire world. And through this forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Isaiah 40 Verse three states, a voice of one who cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Malachi brings this to further light when he says, behold, I send a messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in which you delight, behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts. This was the precursor. This was the herald. This was the individual that God was sending to his people to declare the coming of the Messiah. He did not come in royalty. He did not come in intellectual prowess. He did not come with wealth and material possession. He came humbly. And he proclaimed the word of God humbly, calling the nation of Israel back to repentance, back to their God. For he wandered in the desert, he ate honey and locusts, he was clothed in camel hair. And I believe that the position in which he took within his ministry is culminated and climax in the statement in which he makes about the Messiah. For he never wanted to be seen greater than the one in whom he succeeded or preceded, And I believe that the reason that his attire is given to us and the manner in which he lives is then culminated in this, in this phrase here. It is, I am unworthy to loosen the sandal straps of the one who comes after me. He wanted Jesus to get full attention for what was going to happen. He saw himself as nothing. And John, or he says, say Jesus saw John as one of the greatest prophets ever. And it would be this individual. Now, you are a very intelligent group of people. I'm going to challenge you with verse 78. Because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit, From on high. Let us understand that Greek words often require numerous English words to translate their meaning from one language to the other. Within the Greek words that were used here in the original text, it is absolutely amazing to me because there are two connotations both considered in the English representation of what is being said here. Let me explain you can translate it as they have and perfectly acceptably, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It means the rising of a heavenly body. But it also can be translated, again perfectly acceptably, as the shoot of a plant that has grown out of the wilderness. Now if you know your Old Testament you will find that both of those are illustrations given for the coming messiah notice with me in numbers 2417 you can impress all your friends at the christmas parties this year i see him but not now i behold him but not near a star come out of jacob and the scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the foreheads of Moab, and the breaking down of all the sons of Sheath. This was a prophecy concerning the rising of the Messiah out of the land of Jacob. And also, of course, in Isaiah 11, 1 through 2 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is the, of course, the house of David, and a branch from the, its roots shall bear fruit, and upon the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the, the Spirit or knowledge of the fear of the Lord. Those argue that state that the only way that he could have done such a thing is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which I agree. In this, in this one phrase... He is saying that the sunrise shall visit us. That's that same phrase from on high. The sunrise from on high is again the phrase that indicates Messiah and also can be translated according to the root of Jesse. But what does he come to do? He comes to visit us the same manner in which the God of Israel visit us, the God the Father, and he has come to diagnose our problem. What has he come to diagnose? How has the course of treatment been altered from the very first verse, 68, until now? Not in one way, shape, or form at all. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in shadow of the of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God the Father visited us, diagnosed our problem, sent the Son. He visited us, diagnosed our problem. And through Him, the course of treatment has been given to us that we can pass from darkness to light, from death to life, all through Messiah, Jesus. And not only that, but to guide our feet in the way of peace. The peace here that he is talking about is the peace that he now believes will come through the Messiah and that's more importantly not peace with the enemies gathered in this world against him but his state before God. We want to believe as a non-believer that God is simply our friend. He sits on our shoulder and tells us what to do when we're about to do something bad and then of course Satan is the the other little thing on the other shoulder telling us to do what we shouldn't do. But what most people don't understand is that an individual apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, stands at enmity with God. That's something we don't want to comprehend. But until we comprehend that, we're not going to reach out for a Savior. Until we comprehend that we are under the weight of judgment and the wrath of God is upon us for our sins, we are not going to reach out, cry out, and call out to God for a Savior through that Savior, allowing peace to be found between me and the Father. For the Bible says that Jesus has become our propitiation. As God looks through Jesus Christ, though positionally, I should say practically, I am still wrought with sin. I'm a work in progress. Be patient with me. God's still working on me. But positionally through Christ... God the Father looks at me through Christ and allows for perfection. Therefore I can enter the throne room of God boldly any time in my time of need to find grace and mercy and help. Why? Because in Christ I'm perfect. Am I perfect now? No, I'm still a work in progress. But positionally before God I am perfect. That's hard for me to think of. I keep telling my wife I'm perfect and she just will not accept it. I try. Just pray for her, okay? (laughs) And I don't know, it baffles my mind to even be considered this, but as God looks through me, as God looks at me through Christ, all my deficiencies, all my sin, all the darkness within me has been obliterated by Christ. And I'm a brand new creation in Him. And and as a result, I have a peace. With God. From the very beginning, as we've counted down to Christmas, we have found that nothing is too hard for God. We've discovered that nothing is impossible for God. And now we have discovered that what appeared to be hard and appeared to be impossible, God has now seemingly overcome through the birth of John the Baptist, and next week as we celebrate our Christmas celebration, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to give us new life in and of Him. Until He sets up His throne there in the millennial kingdom during that period of reign after His return uh, and so forth, He says, I have given you victory over what may hinder you from fully following Me, and that is death. If we as believers in Jesus Christ would no longer fear death, there is nothing that man can do to us to hinder us from serving our God faithfully. Is there? What could God do to us? I mean, what can man do to us? If we do not fear death and Jesus Christ has overcome death for us through his sacrifice and resurrection on the cross. O death, where is your sting? For the last enemy has been conquered by Christ.